to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Sally Frank is a professor of law at Drake Law School. Today we discussed her paper, Eve Was Right to Eat the Apple, The Importance of Narrative Theory to the Art of Lawyering. In other words, facts can be interpreted different ways and lawyers need to be able to understand how to tell a story using the facts in the way that reflects most positively on their client. If you find this interview helpful, please subscribe and share with a friend. It really does help. And now, to the interview. So before we get too far into the paper, I'd I'd like you to start by explaining a little bit about narrative and why it's important for lawyers to understand uh, how to use narrative. Sure. Well, if you're trying a case, the key thing is you're telling a story. To talk to a jury, a summation, even an opening to introduce the story is putting all the facts together so someone can understand it and so it can be cohesive. So storytelling is an essential aspect of the practice of law, at least of trial practice. Um, and in essence, we're all storytellers. We Something happens, we go home, we tell, a sto- tell our friends, relatives, family members the story of what happened. And the lawyer is trying to get these stories from every witness but pull it together for the jury or the judge to create a cohesive framework that the judge can understand or the jury can understand what's going on. Right. The paper talks a little bit about uh, how our narratives are influenced by our backgrounds and perspectives when we tell them and when we interpret them. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your background and how that has changed how you tell and interpret narratives? Well, I'm Jewish, and I definitely take a Jewish approach to understanding texts. And I joke that um, rabbis and lawyers have very similar approaches to text, which is that whether it's the Bible or a statute, every word has meaning. Mm-hmm. You have to ferret out what that meaning is. There isn't a superfluous word that's statutory interpretation. You sit there and you say, if the word is upon, what does upon mean? And so I even clerked for a judge, and we wrote a four-page opinion on what upon meant, because one thing happened after another, and the question, the statute said upon, and the question was, did that mean immediately after or at any time after? So any word can become crucial in legal analysis, and the way Jews interpret the Bible is again finding meaning in every word. Justice, justice shall you pursue. It's not just justice you shall pursue. It says it twice. Well, why does it say it twice? What does that mean about justice? What? And there's commentary after commentary on why the word's repeated, because it wouldn't have been an accident. Some of the topics in this paper remind me of The Righteous Mind, the book, a book that came out uh, probably in the last three years or so. I'm, are you familiar with that book? No. It's it's a little bit about how our backgrounds influence, make us predisposed to certain political parties. Mm-hmm. And it helps uh, people on one side help them understand how others have mm-hmm. the belief system they do. Uh, and I think that uh, people who listen to this podcast are pretty interested in this book. So, um, so I'm basically using this time to recommend it. Well, in that case, I mean, in that case, I would definitely say that my understanding of Judaism very much influences my being a, a social justice advocate. Okay, yeah. I represent protesters. Um, the fact that in 
the article, I end with the justification defense is no accident because I represent protesters. Um, and I really connect with the idea that we were slaves in the land of Egypt and that therefore we cannot oppress a stranger. Um, you should not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor, which is a poster up there. And one of my favorite Jewish holidays is the Passover Seder, where we're supposed to imagine as I myself was a slave, I myself was freed, and therefore I have to think about and feel for all the others, for everyone else who's oppressed, right. and for the freedom of everyone else. It's, a, in my view, a kind of liberation theology Jewish style. Right. Uh, would you say most uh, people from a Jewish background have is take a similar, as much a serious approach to that as you do? Everybody's different. Right. But you will find more Jewish liberals than one might expect given, and I don't want to make generalizations, but the median income of Jews would probably put them a little bit higher income-wise from the poor. And yet Jews, by and large, are more sympathetic to social policies that help the poor that might not be in their economic interests and are very serious about things like religious liberty. Right. But, you know, there are also very politically conservative Jews. and There's a joke, two Jews, three opinions. So (laughs) um, I'd never speak for all Jews. Right. In the paper, it mentions a little bit about critical legal studies. Mm -hmm. I talked about this a little bit with Dean Anderson uh, a couple weeks ago, but could you, we didn't get too far into it. Could you explain a little bit about what that is and uh, why it is important? Well, the law is not a science. It is not that, like, you know, two and two equals four, so four is going to be the answer the court will reach. A lot of other things influence the law a need for order, a need for understanding what can and can't be enforced, Uh, politics, sociology, history, an understanding or lack thereof of diversity and of different people's experience. Um, If you are upper class white, you might not have the same reaction to being pulled over by a police officer as if you were a black teenager, teenage male especially. And if you can't relate and understand that other experience, then your rulings may not take that into account and think, well, why would anybody not fully cooperate? You know, I just give the officer my license, my registration, and then fine, I get a ticket, fine. And not understand how how frightful the experience could be. And so things like that all influence judges. Now, I'm not saying that the judges consciously are saying, hey, I want the ruling class to stay the ruling class, and I want um, to keep power where it is and things like that. But I think it it influences how they look at the law. And, and critical legal theory has helped people to recognize the sexism, racism, and other isms that are embedded, and class, in how law is approached. For a lot of listeners, they're students like myself who are just finished up their undergrad or in their undergrad and considering law school. As far as helping them work on preparing to tell stories, develop narratives, what are some things they can do to help them uh, be better at that? Well, 
listen to storytelling, listen to good storytelling, the Moth Radio Hour, things like that where you can get tips. Be within yourself. Some people are very dramatic storytellers. I love summations. I love telling the story. I'm not a drama. I can't do the drama. I can't be theatrical. I just... So you still have to be within who you are. Uh, but the key thing what I was trying to show in the article that I think is really important is also to recognize that there are facts, but the facts can be put together in many different ways, and they can tell very different stories. Um, there are two FBI agents who don't like Trump who are involved in an investigation. That can tell a story of, well, they have people have personal opinions and they can separate them and be good investigators, or it could mean that everything about the investigation now is a witch hunt. Those are two way different stories. Basic fact, yeah, they sent text critical of Donald Trump. So when you're a lawyer, each side's going to have its own story, and you have to listen to the facts that you've got and, and figure out which story you want to tell and how you want to present it to make your case. Right. And the facts don't necessarily dictate the story. They impact it. But both sides are going to tell the story with those same facts. Right. And then the other side, for those interpreting the story or listening to the story or evaluating the story, uh, for some of our listeners who may not be going to law, who perhaps might be on a jury or that's the only side they'll see of the legal uh, interaction, what can they do to uh, be more critical of a story being told, to evaluate it and try to see, you know, because of the two sides, how they can evaluate more critically? Well, you have to listen to the witnesses, think about their source, who they are, what their self-interest may or may not be in it. Recognize, um, we just had somebody in our, in the clinic class, we had someone come in and talk about fact-finding, and he was pointing out there. Nobody tells the truth in terms of the truth with a capital T. We all tell the truth as we know it, as we remember it, as we believe. Well, some people don't, don't tell the truth and don't care. But most people, you know, try their best to tell what they believe to be the truth. But the objective truth is not going to be known by anyone. We've seen a piece. We may not remember it well. We usually, if you're a witness, you didn't expect an incident to happen, so you aren't prepared to, like, let me really focus so I can remember this. <laughs> and so one needs to understand that even if everyone's trying to tell the truth, that there are lenses yeah. and that different lenses come through and putting it together of what someone thinks makes sense from it and how they conclude it, but the person listening to the story also has to think, what are my biases? Why am I believing one person versus another? Right. Is it because I trust police, so the police officer must be correct in the officer's perceptions? Or is it because I totally distrust the police, so the officer must be wrong in everything the officer said? Um, do I have some racial implicit bias or other kinds of implicit bias where I take might not take somebody as telling as much of the truth as others. So we have to be aware of ourselves as we're listening to that story. And, you know, it's not just lawyers. People are going to be voters, and they're going to listen to stories of what's happening on the news, reading in the newspaper, and then make their own personal decisions of 
what that means in their vote in their voting, and they need that same critical eye mm-hmm. as they're listening to the stories of things around them. Yeah, uh, not to get too sidetracked, but into that, especially when it comes to voting, the next year and a half or so, a lot of people are going to be, you know, evaluating candidates, and uh, I've tried to look for different sources that you can really kind of get a general idea of what or more in depth of what candidates might believe on certain issues. And I was wondering, generally speaking, if there's any resources that have helped you as far as evaluating candidates uh, that may not be generally aware to the public. Well, you can look at their votes, look at their explanation for their votes, because sometimes somebody votes against a bill that on the surface sounds like, why in the world would anyone vote against this? But then you see there's a poison pill somewhere in the bill. So, you know. Look at their reasons, then maybe if you hear their reason, maybe look at the bill itself and say, oh, do I support that piece? Uh, But not only the history they project, but nowadays with the Internet, we can look them up, see what they've done, what was their record at their prior jobs, Mm -hmm. what has been their voting record, um, and that, you know, what people have done in the past can give some hints to what they will do in the future. So. Right, right. So the, then the paper starts to go into uh, a defense of Eve. And yes. could you tell a little bit about uh, what got you to uh, write a paper about this topic? And then also to set the stage for the defenses, a little bit about the story that okay. uh, precipitates it. Well, what actually got it started was that I, was give, I gave a short sermon for a regional Women of Reform Judaism event. At a, at a service, and that was the Torah portion, was the beginning of Genesis. And as I was reading it, I was looking and said, what's wrong with wisdom? They saw that the tr- fruit would be good for wisdom, and they ate it. And that just got me thinking, what do we mean about what what's that problem? And then I decided, had a long talk with someone who's helping me think it through, and I decided to take that nugget and play with it for a law review article. And the Eve part of the article is very much in the Midrashic tradition, which is a Jew, a Jewish way of interpreting where there's a question in the text. A Jewish way of interpreting is to tell a story that would help explain the question in the text. Okay. And um, that's 2,000 years of tradition doing that, if not longer. Mm-hmm. And so... The what the Eve story is, it's the second creation story in Genesis. And God creates Adam, who many think of as male, but there is some question. But anyway, creates Adam and tells Adam not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Eve is created. And at that point, it is Adam and Eve. Adam tells Eve that if they touch the tree, they'll die. Serpent comes and tempts Adam. I mean, tempts Eve, tells her you won't die. This, you'd be just be like God, knowing good from bad. Eve t- takes the fruit and eats some of the fruit. It actually never says what the tree is, although the common notion is an apple. She gives it to Adam, and then God comes in and responds, takes them out of the Garden of Eden, curses the serpent or the snake, um, 
and for Adam and Eve more tells a future of, for Adam of hard work and a woman of hard way hard work as well in giving birth. Um, for Christians, that often becomes the is the original original sin, and therefore, because people are born with their parents having had sex, then everybody is born with original sin. In the Christian view, it's not the Jewish view of the fall of humanity, but I wanted to explore and make an argument that Eve is not the evil temptress that society has claimed her to be, but rather an honored foremother. Right. And then there's a number of potential defenses. Uh, prior to that, you rule out a few of them, uh, duress, self-defense, denial that event occurred, and denial that suspect committed action. Uh, could you explain a little bit why those immediately are not options? Well, you have to go within what the story says and what the commentary on the story says. So what I imagined was that Eve was coming to a criminal defense lawyer, you know, in the Hebrew calendar, 5,700 and something years later, and wanting to be vindicated. Mm -hmm. And so the lawyer's thinking about it. Well, if it wasn't Eve who did it, there's no story. And some of those other things, some of the, the uh, criminal law kind of jokes, so, the Saudi defense, some other dude did it, is not really applicable and doesn't get us into the meat of the story. So instead, what I to sh- demonstrate that idea that the same facts can lead to different stories and you have to pick which one, I applied the defenses of infancy, insanity, mm-hmm. entrapment, yeah. mistake of fact, and justification. Right. Yeah, and can we go through a few of those? Uh, I think the insanity was the one that you mentioned first and go a little more in-depth of why that would be a possible option. Well, in our now 2019 mind, if someone came up to us and said, hey, I did this because some serpent told me to do it, we would say, "Um, maybe you should check into Broadlands. (laughs) And so the first piece... Uh, the, the the first piece of just common thought, not necessarily the analysis of an insanity defense, but the common thought, p- people are hearing voices, have a mental illness. Right. And, but that, of course, the problem with that is then, did God tell Adam not to eat the fruit? Because, <laughs> you, you know, it kind of gets, loses the whole story. And yeah. The number of people in Jerusalem who are hospitalized every year because they, they come to Jerusalem and they're Moses or they're Jesus or whomever. You know. We send them to the hospital. We mm-hmm. don't credit the voices they're hearing. Uh, but the other piece of the insanity defense is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And, of course, before they ate the fruit... They don't know the difference between right and wrong. Right. So that was the how you could get there, but it's not a very satisfying one. Right, right. One. And then the infancy defense, a little bit about that. So the first, this is the first story we hear after Adam and Eve are both created. The rabbinic commentary says they were eight um, hours old. Right. So full-bodied, of course, but... Right. Uh, and very young children don't know what they're doing. And, you, you know, when um, a three-year-old punches somebody, you're not going to charge them with assault. 
or, you know, in the middle of a tantrum, they punch. Right. A 20-year-old is having a tantrum and punches. They do get charged. So there's an infancy defense. that At a certain age, it's presumed that the person doesn't yet know right from wrong mm-hmm. and or can't control their actions, and therefore we don't punish them. Right. So if they were eight days old, I mean eight hours old, even full-bodied, then clearly they were too young to know the di- And it, the text tells us they didn't know the difference between right and wrong because yeah. that was the f- knowledge they would gain by eating the fruit. So therefore you'd have the infancy defense, right. which works well but doesn't make them in- make even to a good person. Right. It's yeah. more an excuse than... Justification. So we're not going to punish you. We'll excuse you, but we don't. What you did was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is mentioned is the mistake of fact. Okay. So nor, mistake of law is not a criminal defense. Mistake of fact can be in very unusual instances, in certain kinds of instances. So the one that I think could come up for any of us. Be you see somebody trying to get into a car, maybe crying and saying, I locked my keys in my car, can you please help me? You help them, they drive off, and the next day the police come to you and say, they robbed the car, you helped them. Mm-hmm. And the, your mistake of fact, the fact that you believed they owned the car, would be a complete defense because you had no intent to aid them and abet them in stealing a car. You right. had an intent to be a good person and help right. someone get in. So that's where the mistake of fact could come up. And here I stretched it a bit, but because Adam was told don't eat the fruit, Adam tells Eve don't touch the tree, there's a midrash that the serpent pushed her into the tree and nothing happened, and that could have created a sense that Adam told her totally wrong. Of course, it's really, in essence, a mistake of law, which is why it won't work. But um, it's that kind of, there is a notion in Jewish law that you put a fence around the Torah. So just so you don't want to be too close because you could accidentally violate. So let's be further back, and then we won't accidentally. But you, you do that too much, and you blow it. Right. And in this case, you know, maybe he wanted her not to go near it so she wouldn't need it, but... By overstating it, he blew it. Right. And then the next one was the entrapment defense. So the Jewish notion of Satan, or Christians would pronounce it Satan, is very different from the Christian notion. The Christian notion is the devil and a totally separate force. The Jewish notion is of Satan being a prosecuting angel, and um, based a lot on the book of Job. Where, where when Job is persecuted, it begins with God and Satan discussing whether or not Job is a good guy. And God allowing Satan to put Job through the ringer under certain limits to test, in fact, whether Job was really a good guy. So in that sense, he was kind of the prosecuting angel to God, is he a good guy or not? And God gave him only so much authority. And Satan didn't exceed it. But we also have, there's also a common notion that the snake was a serpent with Satan. So if Satan is God's prosecuting angel and he talks Eve into eating the fruit when she would not have otherwise, and he causes her to commit the crime, that's an entrapment defense. Mm -hmm. 
So if um, somebody who later turned out to be the prosecutor or a police officer daily works on someone, oh, I'm so sick, I can't, I, I'm going to die from not eating because I have, I have all this chemo, and can you possibly get me some marijuana? I heard it would help, and I don't know where to go. And every day, and where's someone down, they finally get some marijuana for the person and give it to them, and then they're charged with distributing marijuana. That could be an entrapment offense. Now, if every day they're smoking marijuana, it wouldn't be. <laughs> but if they could say, I never, yes, I walked through an area where people are, con you know, if you think New York, walk through an area where people are constantly offering me marijuana so I knew where it could be gotten. Mm -hmm. But I've never bought it before. I, you know, I only did it because this person wore me down. and right. So that's the kind of entrapment. Yeah. Beyond the marijuana example, are there other situations, what are other typical situations we see the entrapment defense being used? Uh. There are actually several of the so-called terrorism trials have tried it, where um, what can happen is someone at a mosque mouths off, or someone at a protest. I mean, so some hothead at some point mouths off, boy, I wish we could just bomb the place. Mm. Probably doesn't mean it. They're just right. mouthing off st stress. Yeah. And you have an, un an informant operating under government authority who says, oh, really? Well, you know, I could get you all the materials. Mm -hmm. And let's, and keeps urging to go through with it, whereas the per, and the person ends up, you know, trying to save face and starts planning it with them. Right. And there's an issue, is that entrapment or isn't it? Right. Maybe they said it first, but if nobody had done anything, that, you know, like someone says, I wish I could just kill the person. They don't mean it. Yeah. If you watch all the old Perry Masons, you immediately know who's going to be charged and who's going to be dead as soon as the person says, I wish you were just dead. I could just kill you. You know, that's... Um, so things like that are arguable and end mm -hmm. up being um, sometimes tried in court about whether that was entrapment or not. Right. And then eventually you land on the... Uh, justification defense. Right, because I love the justification defense, and I use it when I represent protesters. Mm -hmm. um, so the justification defense essentially says they did the right thing mm -hmm. under the circumstances. And so what I argue is, the short of it, is that God's order not to eat the fruit didn't mean don't ever eat the fruit. It was that once you have the knowledge of right and wrong, there are real consequences for doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And they were eight hours old, and God didn't think they were ready. Just as a parent might tell a two-year-old, don't, don't touch the oven, with no intent that when the two-year-old is 25, they should never touch an oven. Right, right. <laughs> but a two-year-old touching it could get burned. So I kind of use that natural thought that, it wasn't a for-all-time order. And there is a Jewish notion that it's one of the explanations for God stopping the work of creation to have the Sabbath, that we are God's partners in creation and that our job is to perfect the world mm -hmm. and put the world together. Um, there's a notion that evil's in the world because there's shattered shards when God contracted into God's self. 
um, the shards of God's light broke. And whenever we do the right thing, we do a mitzvah, we're pasting back a shard. And so that we have to do our part to perfect the world. And how can you possibly perfect the world if you don't know right from wrong? You need that to become God's partners. And that perhaps the whole garden story is a metaphor. So a young child believes their parents are are godlike for them, have control over life and death. If you don't feed the baby, the baby won't live. Um, Think they're perfect and think that their surroundings are perfect, except when they have a little meltdown. But basically they think that their surroundings are perfect. And as we grow older, we start seeing the faults. No, mom and dad aren't great, aren't perfect. They might be great parents. They're doing their best, but they certainly aren't perfect. And we start seeing the flaws and where we are and things like that, and then we and we start growing up, and mm-hmm. we need to then act on the flaws that we see. Mm-hmm. And so, and God is the parent of Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve, so we've got that combination. So it's kind of within that thought that this was a necessary piece for Adam and Eve to take their place in humanity to work for the good, for the good. And that Eden was like we think our home is perfect as, as young children. And then we grow out of it and we start seeing the world. You have to see the world. So that's that's my argument and um, I honor Eve. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good one. Uh, as far as the overall implications for lawyers, for law students, for anybody reading this uh, article, what would you consider them to be? What, what was the general goal of this paper? To show what I was saying earlier, that you've got a set of facts and you have to build a story around it that fits with the argument you want to make. And those six partial summations are very different stories, but none of them change the facts as in the Bible, as given in the Bible. And so it's just a way to exhibit how you would change that story, how you could look at something and say it one way or another way or another way. And... As you're preparing for trial, when you're in trial, your job is to figure out which story you're going to tell through the whole right. through the whole trial, from what from jury selection to opening to summation. But there isn't only one, and also to be aware the other side is doing the same thing. Right, they're looking at the same undisputed facts and building their own story. Yes, well, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. You can learn more about Professor Frank's work by visiting the link in the description below. Thank you for listening.